0: Art uh, isn't pretty. It isn't painting. It isn't something you hang on the wall. Art is what we do when we're truly alive. That's what Seth Godin wants you to believe, and that's what we're going to talk about on this week's episode of the Duct Tape Marketing Podcast. Welcome to another edition of the Duct Tape Marketing Podcast. This is your host, John Jantz, and my guest today is Seth Godin, author, as many of you know, of at least 14 books. There's probably some we don't even know about. Uh, been translated into many, many languages, uh, obviously lots of bestsellers in that uh, group. He has been called uh, by many people, including me, I'll, I'll put myself on this list, uh, America's greatest marketer. Uh, certainly his blog is has, uh, I don't have any metrics in front of me, but I'm guessing is probably one of the most popular blogs, uh, certainly by, written by an individual. So uh, we're going to talk about his latest book, uh, at least uh, that's what we'll spend some time talking about, The Icarus deception. So Seth, thanks for joining me. Thank you, John. And what a kind intro. You can follow me around and introduce me to anyone. (laughs) Well, i would be my pleasure. uh, In fact, Uh, I'll come to New York and do it. So I I guess, or I don't know, maybe this story, maybe you're getting tired of telling this story, but uh, uh, maybe some of my readers are and listeners are not familiar with uh, really your your idea uh, for the can we call it the launch or the creation of this book uh, uh, goes back uh, months and many months ago uh, to uh, to a Kickstarter program. So you you want to kind of talk about your idea or or really maybe why you chose that avenue? Well,
1: you know, two things are going on at the same time. The first is every once in a while a book comes to me and will not go away until I go through the pain and and hard work of actually bringing it to the public. Sometimes it's two years in between books and sometimes it's six weeks, but it's not really up to me. It's up to the idea. So there was a book that had been floating around for about a year, but it wasn't urgent. Uh, but it was starting to become urgent, and we can talk about that in a minute. And at the same time, uh, I saw my friend Amanda Palmer figure out that Kickstarter was finally mature enough as a platform uh, to do something interesting. And what was interesting for me was, could I show authors of every stripe that it was possible to use Kickstarter not to raise money, but to organize people? That if you can organize 2,000 readers, that's all you need, maybe 3,000, you will have more power than anyone in book publishing because it's the first 3,000 people that make a book work or not work. And if you can organize those 3,000 people, even at a break-even level, then you have all the leverage when you want to talk to a printer or to a publisher or to a bookstore or to any partner. So I want to do this in a very transparent way. Uh, so all of these things, when I come up with them, I tend to launch them pretty quick. So maybe it was a Monday, I thought of it, and by Wednesday it was live. And I said to my readers, look, I've created this whole panoply of prizes from $4 up to almost a 1000 And if you want to collect some prizes and support this project, please do. The support isn't to make me a profit. I'm actually going to run this at break-even. It's to figure out if I can organize enough people to make this interesting. And amazingly to me, we sold out – well, we hit the goal in three hours and sold out of just about everything after about six days, which shows that sometimes it takes seven years to be an overnight success, but that once you have a connection with people and a permission base – you can make some pretty extraordinary things happen.
0: Can, can I ask you and, and this is sort of my personal prying um, as, as a, another author and, and you know share what you're comfortable sharing, but uh, we have the same publisher uh, for at least my last couple books and uh, did you take this idea to them after the fact or was this part of your negotiation or and again, I'm, I'm really just curious knowing how the traditional publishing world thinks how they wrap their head around this even.
1: Right. So, you know, the 12 books that i had been involved with before this, two that were written by me and 10 that I published, um, had nothing to do with Penguin or Portfolio. So I announced that I was moving into new ways to bring books to the public. Uh, The day before the Kickstarter went live, I made a courtesy call to the people I knew at Penguin. I said, look, I'm doing this and I'm a fan of everyone there and I like you and I trust you. I want you to see what I'm doing but I was sincere when I was talking to my readers that there was nothing uh, formal in place. I think that what my publisher understood is that after making a public ruckus and making it clear with really transparent metrics that the audience was in place to buy this book, I wasn't going to have any trouble at all finding a publisher in New York. What that meant was I could describe the deal I wanted to make with them, and they understood that they were pretty much in a take it or leave it situation because, the hard part of publishing isn't printing. The hard part of publishing is activating the audience.
0: Yeah. So I guess let me ask you if there's – because I'm, I'm, I'm guessing you learned a bunch. <laughs> but uh, could, could you sort of summarize what you learned from that process that, that might be worth sharing?
1: Well, I would say the biggest benefit is that writing for your readers instead of writing for the middleman is way better. Uh, writing to please the bookstore or writing to please the editor isn't nearly as satisfying as knowing that there's a group of people who are waiting to hear what you have to say, which is part of why I like writing my blog so much is because no one gets to tell me it's a bad idea. Uh, The flip side of that is that the Kickstarter platform is immature, it's lame, it is not friendly to the creator of the item, that fulfillment is a nightmare, that uh, it costs significantly more than it ought to cost to make these sort of interactions work. And the last rant is that some people, maybe 10% or 5%, once they have paid for something, completely change their posture and start acting um, like not very kind, uh, demanding people who say, look, I paid you my $18 and now you must dance on this uh head of a pin until I tell you to stop. Most of my readers aren't like that. Most people in the world aren't like that, but there's no question that when money enters the equation, people act differently.
0: Well, I suspect that I suspect that the actual average is more like 30%. So so the fact that you only have 10% <laughs> speaks to uh, like you said your audience. Um I chose one of the packages. I don't know if you kept track of that uh, type of thing. And one of uh, the packages I chose uh, actually uh, allowed afforded me this 837-pound um, book, um, which is uh, incredible to behold, just in pure uh, pure weight. <laughs> uh, but uh, is is also just a work of art uh, in and of itself. And and I. I uh, maybe you could describe kind of what went into that because I, I just I, I marvel at at it as I flip through it. I mean, again, obviously listeners don't get to see this. This is 800 pages, um, about four or five times the you know, height and width of a normal book, and uh, weighs I, I don't know it probably does weigh about 25 pounds actually, and uh, is just beautifully illustrated and uh, you know breathtaking really, and I I just. I found myself thinking, how much did that cost to produce? Uh, But but maybe you could just tell me a little bit about that piece of the project.
1: Um, Sure. You know, I'm usually uncomfortable talking about me and why this was good for me. So I want to broaden this. And I did this as an example. You know, I have written 2.2 million words on my blog and wanted to have some sort of physical – instantiation of it for my unborn grandchildren, if nothing else. But mostly what I was trying to do is say, in a digital world, there's still an opportunity to use atoms and molecules. And that whatever you can do to make your customers gasp and whatever you can do to make your biggest fans feel grateful for your work is almost certainly worth doing. So I sat down and I said, what is the biggest, scariest, most beautiful, over-the-top book I can imagine? And talked to dozens of printers. All the printers in the U.S. actually disqualified themselves because even though I was willing to pay them extra to do it in the U.S., they just don't have the facilities anymore. So when we finally found a printer that understood what I was trying to do, we said, what's the biggest width and depth and page length? And that's what we want. And we, we worked backwards from that. The, the shipment weighed 60,000 pounds. It came over on two containers on a container ship. Uh, it was all done in six weeks, uh, which none of which is easy, which is exactly why I wanted to do it. Doing things that are difficult on behalf of your best customers is probably a smart strategy. And in terms of what did it cost, I spent more money than all the Kickstarter people paid me to make this thing because – I'm not seeking to make a profit from my very best customers. I'm seeking to make a conversation with them, to build trust with them, to cause conversations to happen. And so if I had spent $40 less per copy and built a book that would have been good enough, that would have met the requirements of most people who got it, I would have gotten very little for it. And the people who got it would have said, oh, that's fine. But instead, and you can Google this and watch the unboxing videos and see the comments that people have posted on the Kickstarter updates, it did what I wanted it to do, which is it showed my gratitude to the people who allow me to make something this ridiculous.
0: Well, uh, yeah, you're absolutely right in terms of the wow factor. I I think um, success uh, was achieved in that. Uh, I have one very specific question. Um, The picture of the wooden canoe really uh, captured my... Uh, I'd, I'd love to hear the story behind that.
1: Well, it's a juicier story than you might guess. So there's a, uh, a photographer named Jill Greenberg. She is the Annie Leibovitz of her, genera- of her generation, the most successful, most well-known uh, editorial photographer around the world um, in her class. And she was doing some work three or four years ago, and I sent her an email out of the blue just to congratulate her on how talented she was. And she wrote back real quickly, uh, saying, so good to hear from you again, Seth. And I racked my brain and could not figure out when I had met Jill Greenberg at what conference or whatever. And it turned out that when she was 14 and I was 19, she took my picture in a canoe at the summer camp I used to help run in Canada. And it's now the earliest, oldest published Jill Greenberg photo ever. So I hired her to take the other three photos on the spine. Those are new, modern photos but then I thought it would be perverse and cause me to smile to put that picture of me when
0: I was 19 on there as well (laughs) that is a incredible hairstyle let me just put let me just start right there I but, had an af- I had
1: an afro, yeah. and it was four inches from scalp to, to tip.
0: <laughs> well, I'm a huge wooden canoe fan, so that's actually what uh, what. Drew well, you me and I drew. will have
1: to discuss that another time. I had a fleet of sixty of them.
0: Oh my lord, awesome! Well, you know what we uh, as a, as it's so easy to do with you. You know, we have just uh, been chatting here, and we haven't gotten to. Uh, we haven't mentioned the word Icarus uh, yet, and and uh, l- let's dive a little bit into. I I actually was drawn in very quickly to the book. You know, of course, like a lot of people, I wondered what does this title mean. And I was drawn in very quickly by your story and your full story of uh, of the the myth of Icarus. I'm a, a Joseph Campbell reader. I really enjoy his books as well, and and I know that. Uh, You you do too because you mentioned it. But uh, uh, tell a little bit tell tell the kind of theme or the the cornerstone story uh, um, around the title.
1: Let me tell you three things that made me really sad. Uh, The first is uh, watching kids navigate the public school system and seeing them in you know one of the stablest richest countries ever created being taught to grow up to be factory workers who do what they're told uh, and being told from an early age to fit in. Uh, number two is um, seeing the people on the internet who have been given this huge range of tools, the ability to connect with a billion other people and publish and video and post things. And so many of them are playing the small game. Uh, they're looking for a shortcut. They're trying to make a nickel, uh, maybe a dollar. They're Uh, figuring out how to use weasel words and and leave uh, customer A behind because there's always customer B over there. And then the third story uh, happened to me when I was recently giving a talk and a woman raised her hand and said, well, this works fine for other people, but I helped run a community college. And let me tell you, every single kid who applies, we have to take them. We don't get any choice. And those people, those people aren't going to ever grow up to make art aren't ever going to do anything important. Those people are the ones who are going to flip burgers. And I was just so saddened by all three, but particularly the last one. Yeah. And so that's why I needed to write this book, is because what the book talks about is that the mythology has changed. Mythology is uh, one of the true insights into a culture. And the mythology of 1800 and of 1700 The story of Icarus was different than it is now. When we tell the story of Icarus now, everyone knows the punchline. Don't fly too close to the sun. Don't show your hubris. If you fly too high, the sun will melt the wax and your wings will fall off and you will die. But in fact, you can look it up. You can look up in uh, Google Books from 1800, 1850. You will find books that tell the story of Icarus. And what it says is that Daedalus said to Icarus, Two rules, my son, as you follow me. Rule number one is do not fly too close to the sun. But more important, do not fly too low. Because if you fly too low, the mist and the waves will weigh down your wings and you will surely perish. And I think we are guilty of flying too low.
0: When you talk about that um, in schools, but I mean certainly think about how many companies, you know, the the word from the manager is, you know, keep your head down, don't make a noise, you know, go by the book. I mean I I think that's – it's pervasive, isn't it?
1: Well, I mean, you get up and you give a speech and you've just said an hour's worth of really engaging, uh, challenging stuff. And then you say, any questions? And there's 100 or 1,000 people in the room with you, John. And does everyone raise their hand or does one person raise their hand? Is it that the other 85 people in the room are dolts or is it that they have been trained not to ask a question because that might get them in trouble? That might make them get them branded as uppity. And so we're seeing all these organizations, these industrial entities that profited from, for so long from polishing their systems and vaguely incre- increasing their productivity, and now they're struggling. And the reason they're struggling is that somewhere all the time there's someone cheaper or faster than they are. So the only route left is not to race to the bottom, but to race to the top.
0: Um, the, the very large book compilation that we talked about you know one side says this might work this the other side says this might not work and and I think that at least for me as I read the book that seems to be the point right is to go you know gleefully out uh, and practice your art knowing that this might not work
1: exactly how often do the people you you work with sit at a meeting and say hey let's try that it might not work That's not the way we were trained. We're told to bring in proof and spreadsheets and downside estimates, and we shouldn't do anything that isn't guaranteed to work. You know, you look at all the people just to pick the most trivial example who are racing to get followers on Twitter now. Well, where were they the first two years when anyone who showed up on Twitter could win, right? Well, they were waiting for it to be proven. But once it's proven, it's too late to win.
0: You and I are of um, a certain age that uh, we can claim to be Neil Young fans, early Neil Young fans, although I suspect you saw him at Woodstock, and I did not. Uh. I was only eight. (laughs) But
1: a little aside, my grandparents had a a little summer shack up in that part of New York State, and I was there with them that week that Woodstock was going on, and they could not figure out why the phone kept ringing with hippies asking if they could sleep over. Because people were just looking through the phone book and calling every oh, single number.
0: Oh, but funny. I was only eight. All right. Uh, there's a quote in there that uh, that you hold out that uh, it, you know should be a dagger in, in the heart of most people who uh, who read it and, and use it as a wake-up. But uh, holding back is so close to stealing. I'm not sure what, what song that's a lyric from, but I'm a huge Neil Young fan, so that really captured me.
1: Yeah, and if you parse it and think about it, what you realize is who is being stolen from, right? You're not just stealing from your future, that in the connection economy where all of us are all that is being created, the connections between all of us, when you hold back, you're not putting it into the kitty. You're not putting it into the commons. And not only are you stealing from yourself, you're stealing from everybody.
0: You know one of the things that I mean again I you know I'm I'm 100% on board with the the, the theories and the and the ideas behind this book but we're, it still feels like there's a whole lot of people that you know you're you know, we're having to cajole. We're having to, you know, to really push in this idea. And, and one of the things that you you spend a lot of time talking about is that, that what's so silly is now that, that the cost of failing, you know, it used to be you got one or two shots, right? You blew your wadge, you know, you mortgaged your house, you did the things, you know, now the cost of failing is so incredibly low. So why, you know, why do we still have this holdback? Is it just society?
1: Well, culture is, runs really deep. And if you're, 30 or 40 or 50 years old, you know, 300, 500 days a year, whatever it is, people have been drilling it into your head to act a certain way. It's fascinating if you spend any time with 15-year-olds. 15-year-olds don't have a filter when it comes to exposing their private life online because no one taught them not to. And they don't have a filter about uh, planning to eliminate all indications of failure from their past because it's impossible. So their standards and rules are completely different. And their kids are going to have even more different standards and rules about this. So this is a revolution, and revolutions don't last forever. But while the shift is going on, there is a huge advantage to the person who lives with fear, who embraces fear, who figures out how to do things that make a ruckus and might not work, because everybody else is busy polishing and it doesn't last forever, the same way the Industrial Revolution doesn't last forever. But there's no question that it's the opportunity of a lifetime.
0: You, um, there's, a, We talked about <clears throat> the, um, the very large book, um, This May Work, This May Not Work. Um, you also put out a children's book, uh, or I, I should say a, a children's format book, because I think it's actually very much for grown-ups. Um, v is for Vulnerable, Life Outside the Comfort Zone – and uh, there's a quote in the Icarus Deception that again, uh, you know, maybe you thought it was, maybe you thought it was this powerful, maybe you didn't, but it really struck me as as one of the most thought-provoking uh, little quotes in the book. And it's every successful children's book is a breakthrough. Um, that you know, that, that knowing the rules uh, is only important so that you can break them. And I, I don't know, if maybe other people have told you that that particular idea. Um, of how hard it is to actually create a children's book um, really struck me as very profound.
1: Well, so, yeah, so the book, Vids for Vulnerable, is the last chapter of Icarus, illustrated by Hugh McLeod. And the reason that I did it is I think that formats matter, that when someone's standing on the stage at TED, you have a certain uh, expectation about what's about to happen. It's different if they're standing on a street corner wearing shabby clothes. Same speech different affect, right? And what children's books do is the format reminds us of Dr. Seuss and her mom and Myra Kalman and Hand, Hand, Fingers, Thumb and what it meant to be four years old with nothing but possibility in front of you. So by stealing that format, but putting in a very adult set of ideas like A is for anxiety um, and S is for shame, I'm able to get under your skin. And one thing I've noticed about this book when I've handed it to people, unlike every other book I've ever been part of, is the people who I hand it to read it on the spot. They stand there and read the whole thing. And that's magical to me because it doesn't feel off-putting. It feels like something that might be worth 15 minutes of your time. And you know, to your point about children's books, almost everything that is a home run is a surprise. They, we use the word surprise bestseller. Harry Potter was a surprise bestseller. Gangnam Style was a surprise viral video. Twitter was a surprise online service. If you really want to have something that makes a dent in the universe, expect that it's going to surprise everybody, which means if you're working on something boring, you're probably on the wrong path.
0: Well, I'll, I'm, uh, I'm going to take a break here and... and go talk about me. <laughs> Please, let's talk about you. Cuz um, I'm tired of talking. About you. No, no, we'll get back to you, but um as I read through the book, you know, I kept finding myself saying that I don't feel like an artist. I don't feel like I break that many rules. Um, I do uh, I do get a sense from what people tell me that I've created something that's innovative, but I, my personal belief is all I do is recognize patterns and I don't feel like I create much of anything.
1: Well, I don't completely disagree, and that's why I've been a fan of yours since the beginning, right? I mean, every day, many people send me books to blurb and promote, but yours always comes to the top of the pile because when you first set out with duct tape marketing with a unique point of view and a unique look and a unique title for an audience that was underserved, you didn't write the standard blame-free business book. You wrote something that was personal, that made people feel like you were on their side, and that connected them. And your new book was really radical for someone coming from where you were coming from. You made a lot of bets about the fact that your audience might very well be interested in doing something more than making a mortgage payment, and really led them in a way that I think had a lot of bravery. So I hope you're not selling yourself short.
0: Well, no, you know what? What I'm probably recognizing is is just like with a lot of your work, you don't. I mean, you're just, you're, you're taking the path that, that you think makes sense for you and, and that, or, you know, that, that there's an audience that, that's very easy for them to accept. And I think that's probably the difference, but I, you know, I sometimes don't think that it's not selling short. It's just, uh, you know, I, I just feel like I'm a lot of times just being me and, uh, and. Fortunately, I wake up every day wondering why in the world that impacts people. But, but I don't see that as selling short I, as much as I'm almost more just amazed that we can do this. Though. I guess that's part of what I'm saying.
1: Exactly. And that is the thing that everyone who doesn't do this is going to look back on in just 10 years, and they're going to curse themselves. It would be like being alive in 1924 and not opening some giant industrial operation. It was so easy to change the world and become a gazillionaire in 1924 if you just had the guts to make your business bigger. And in 1955, if you just bought a lot of TV ads, that's all you had to do to change everything. The more you bought, the more you did. Period. It was easy. Well, the same thing is true here, that people have given us this set of keys and the locks are all open for a little while.
0: You talk a lot about, um, you, you know, you, you talk in not such uh, glowing ways about, you know, the factory days, uh, so to speak. And now you talk about how, you know, the, the, the place to be now is on the, I think you could call it the design side of things. And um, I think that that's, you know, that point of view probably uh, needs to be how people are thinking. So you want, you want to talk just briefly about this, this idea of, of being the ones that make this, that make the stuff or think the stuff up or the design side?
1: In 1820, the unemployment rate in the United States was zero. And the reason it was zero is there were no jobs. The whole idea that you needed a job was alien. Jobs, we've just invented them. And the jobs you could get in 1900 were like cleaning the swill out of the drain at the abattoir. And in 1920, it, a, a job you could get was screwing Part A onto Part B over and over again. So we worked our way up to what we think of as a good job, and now a good job in the 1960s was being a middle manager, moving a piece of paper from one side to the other. It's a mistake to think that this design thing is yet another step up the ladder of a good job because the design thing, if we want to call it that, involves making errors and owning your ideas none of the other jobs in a 100-year arc of jobs involve either of those things. That means that if you want to get onto this side of the tracks, you have to say to the world, here, I made this. On January 2nd, I'm doing this thing in 250 cities around the world called the Icarus Session, Mm -hmm. where people can get up and in 140 seconds say to a group of strangers, here, I made this. Not a sales pitch, but I'm afraid I I don't know if you're going to like it. And here's what I was thinking when I made it. And here's why it's generous. And what's fascinating to me is that while many people want to come, a whole bunch of people are afraid to stand up and say, here, I made this. They wouldn't have been afraid when they were four. They want to show everyone in the world their finger painting. But somewhere along the way, we got it burned out of us that we're unwilling to say, I did this. What do
0: you think? And and just let's finish on that thought, because uh, I know I noticed there's one in the Kansas City area. Um, and, and is there a place where people can go and find those?
1: Yeah, it's, um, it's at Meetup Everywhere. and So let me just give you the URL. I think it's meetup.com slash Seth Godin, and it's free. And you just have to sign up in advance. If it works, great. We'll do it every month. Uh, every city has its own organizer. It's all Dutch Street. You may have to register in advance. Maybe not. But once you find your city there, you'll find a whole discussion about uh, whether you want to
0: go or not. Very, very cool. I hope, I hope some of it gets recorded. I think it'd be, uh, uh, it would be it itself, I think, will be some beautiful art, just, just watching people that genuinely do that. Yeah, it could be. So um, I, there's a new term. I've got two more thoughts I, I want to finish up with. Um, uh, you say revolution eliminates the perfect and enables the impossible, but they also overwhelm us uh, with cruft. Uh, that was a new term to me, but uh, I think it's a, it's an interesting uh, phenomenon um, in terms of, you know, if you're going to make this change, there are some expectations, aren't there?
1: At Harvard University, I was walking through the campus a, a couple of months ago, and there's a building there called Cruft Hall where many of the breakthroughs in the invention of radio were made in the early 1900s. But the word Cruft got stolen by the computer programming community, and what it describes is that these physicists and engineers, after they were done with a piece of equipment, just left it on the counter and piling it high in the windows, basically filled the whole building top to bottom with leftover useless electronics gear. And computer programmers describe lines of code that don't do anything anymore as cruft that have to be cleaned out. So there's all this cruft left over from the industrial age cruft about expectations and bosses and job security and mistakes and connection and spam and perfection and financing. All of it's cruft. And that's what revolutions do, is they create all this leftover stuff that doesn't have a function the way that it used to. And I would uh, submit that most of what we teach people in public school is now cruft.
0: I think its it's just such a it's almost an onomatopoeia kind of word, you know? It, just, right. it, it has like emotion exactly. people,
1: people know what it means before they even hear the
0: definition. <laughs> That's funny. Um, I, all right, last thing I want to uh, share, really a, a, an idea very near and dear my heart, and this was a direct quote. It was the first thing I uh, highlighted in the book. Uh, Strategy is empty without change. So um, I guess, let me ask you this. Is there a change that you hope to create with this book?
1: Well, the good news is I already am. And as a result of the Kickstarter, 10,000 people have read the book. I'm hearing from people. uh, Some people are quitting their jobs. Some people are taking new jobs. Many people are going to work and talking to their boss about this and handing out copies and saying, look, I'm tired of trying to take advantage of geography because geography doesn't matter so much anymore. What are we going to do to be the one and the only and the best in the world and the one worth seeking out. So the change I'm trying to make is to help people see the change that's already happening around them and to take advantage of it now while it's easy as opposed to later when it's probably too late.
0: Um, I lied. I have one more question. Um, Please. Because because I have actually had numerous people uh, ask me this. I uh, uh, put a picture of me holding the very large book – kind of up like the the um, the tablet with the uh, commandments on it. <laughs> <laughs> you were Charles Peston, yeah? Yeah, exactly. And I posted it to Instagram, and I immediately got several comments from people, where will I be able to buy that? And I think the answer is nowhere.
1: Correct. Now and then I'm going to do some charity auctions and giveaways, but what I'm trying to do is reward the people who believed in me when it wasn't so easy to believe in this project. Now that the project is there and everyone loves it, well, I'm not sure it's right to be able to say, oh, yeah, I was just kidding, to that first group of people who took a chance. So, you know, there may be a time when you can spend a couple hundred bucks to help me raise money for charity, but it's not going to be in the store. There is an abridged edition that weighs 17 pounds less, has no color, has no illustrations, and that's in the store next week. It's called What You're Going to Do With That Duck.
0: Right. Well, Seth, uh, thank you so much. Always great to visit with you uh, and, and tell stories and listen to your stories and another another home run with your book. And uh, I, again, appreciate how generous you've been with me.
1: Well, thanks for the work you do. I, I,
0: I appreciate it, and I know a lot of other people do, too.